Dear ones, if you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, as we, uh, on this special Resurrection uh, Sunday, do take time to consider uh, the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are walking as a congregation through uh, the book of Romans, but we will take a break from that uh, this Sunday and continue that, God willing, next week. Uh, Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds, that we would, by your grace, Receive and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. In fifteen twenty four, the great German reformer, Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, wrote an Easter hymn based upon our text for this morning, here in Acts chapter two. In the opening verse, he wrote this, quote, Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands for our offenses given. But now at God's right hand, he stands and brings us life from heaven. Therefore, let us joyful be and sing to God right thankfully loud songs of hallelujah. Beloved, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen? He is risen from the dead. God raised him up, as it states a couple of times in our text. God raised him up. If 
If this is not true, if, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is only a, a sentimental myth and not a historical fact, then Christianity crumbles at its very core. Christianity is not founded upon myth. It's not founded upon, as the British would say, fairy stories. It's founded upon historical facts. And we're going to see here in this sermon that Peter gives that the message is rooted in historical facts about where Jesus came from, about who Jesus was, about what Jesus did. This gospel is not primarily about us. It is about what Christ has done. It's not about what we have done or what we can do in service to God. The good news is about what Christ has done for sinners. And that's what we are rejoicing in and celebrating this day. If it's just a sentimental myth, Christianity crumbles at its very core. Isn't this what the inspired Apostle Paul alluded to when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter, that, quote, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. Indeed, we are of all people most to be pitied. But indeed, Christ has risen from the dead. The grave which his body laid in for three days is empty. His body is not there. But friends, should we be surprised? Should we be surprised? The Old Testament prophets prophesied that this would happen. Christ himself said that this would happen several times during his public ministry. At least three times, very clearly, Christ said that he would be betrayed, that he would be unjustly tried, that he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise from the dead. Angels from heaven announced Uh, This truth to the two Marys at the tomb. He made several post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. And according to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he appeared to no less than 500 people before he ascended into heaven. Our resurrected Lord even appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road, didn't he? Uh, uh, This was well after his ascension, radically saving Paul and making him a herald of that gospel that he sought to destroy. And in our passage for this morning, we are reminded that Jesus Christ, the living Christ, sent his Holy Spirit to be poured out upon his church just as he promised he would do. Beloved, this morning we celebrate the good news that Jesus is alive. He rose bodily from the, from the grave, from the dead. And because he lives, we, through true and saving faith, have a sure hope of salvation through his sinless life, through his sacrificial death, and through his hell-vanquishing resurrection. The gospel is not about what we do. It is about what God has done. Amen? It's about what God has done in and through His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John eleven twenty five, 25, on the occasion of raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to Martha these very well-known words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die die. He then asks Martha, and he asks us, he asks you, do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asks Martha, do you believe this? He asks us. Do we believe this? This morning during Adult Sunday School, we are unpacking the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the the question we dealt with this morning, question 72, is what is justifying faith? And 
part of the answer is demonstrating, as any good teaching will do, not only what is true faith, but what is not true faith. And one thing they bring out is that what is not true faith is faith that only mentally assents to the truth of the gospel. Who else simply mentally assents to the truth of the gospel? The devil himself. You see, there is what theologians call historical faith. What is historical faith, Pastor John? Thank you for asking. Historical faith is having faith, as it were, quotation marks, that believes the historical facts about Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that Jesus existed. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. I believe that happened. But you know what? Simply believing that those things happened historically and factually does not mean you have true and saving faith. There's also what's called a kind of false faith. Faith that says, yes, I believe this, but there is no real embracing of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. It's what politicians often talk about. Well, I have my faith. My faith is important to me. Faith in what? Faith in faith? Faith in yourself? Well, that's mostly what it is in New Age America. Faith in your... I have faith. Everybody wants to appeal to the evangelical caucus, right? I have faith. I'm with you. I'm a person of faith. Faith in what? Uh, Don't ask me that. No one asked that question. So we have this historical faith. Well, I believe in the facts of the gospel. And this kind of false faith. Well, I have faith, but can't even really articulate what that even means. And believing somehow that just having faith saves you. But true and saving faith is different than those false faith because it actually receives and rests upon and in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. There's actually a personal relationship there. There's actually a change in status from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ, which means you are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3. We read it early in our assurance of pardon. You see, to have historic, historical faith or false faith is really to have no faith at all. It's simply belief in facts or some personal creation of what you think faith is, but is really not true in saving faith. True in saving faith clings to Christ. And when one clings to Christ, one recognizes that all other roads and options to heaven are false roads and false options. Because God, the one true God, sent his one true son to accomplish the one true salvation through his life, death, and bodily resurrection from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell. Amen? That is the good news of the gospel. It's not one of many good news, newses. (laughs) It's the good news. Are we really... So crazy is to believe that God would send his beloved son into the world to be mocked, spit upon, whipped, and crucified as if they're, and and to do all of that and to crush his own son and then to make all kinds of other options to heaven? That'd be, that's blasphemous to say that. Christ is the one mediator between God and man, and he is the one who died and rose again on the third day. It's the Christ that Peter preached on this Pentecost. As we turn our attention to the Apostle uh, Peter's sermon in Acts 2, let us be reminded that God's word is not simply meant to elicit admiration and respect of Jesus. This is meant to be believed. This is meant to be believed as the objective truth of God. So from the outset of this message, I'm compelled to ask you, dear one, do you believe in the risen Christ? I can think about my own life, and I can think about 
This is not true of everyone because many covenant children grow up in Christian homes and they believe from a young age and they've never known a day when they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and love the Lord Jesus Christ and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that testimony. Some people say, I don't have a good testimony. I wasn't living in crazy sin before I came. I don't have, a, I don't have an interest. Every testimony is glory because every testimony is a testimony to the power of Christ to save sinners. But I can remember prior to knowing Christ, living with that mental ascent of belief in Christ, but no real sincere faith. Clinging to the world, I gave a mental ascent. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. But it had no real bearing upon my life because I was not living in Christ and for Christ by his grace. And so we must ask ourselves today, do our lives demonstrate sincere faith and repentance in the crucified and risen Savior? Christ does not have any open marriages. I mentioned earlier in Sunday school this this slap that was heard around the world. Don't pretend you don't know about that, okay? The slap that was heard around the world. When Will Smith got up and slapped this comedian up on stage, and he was saying, I, I'm standing up for my family. I'm a man, and so Will Smith, with all this integrity, right, and wanting to defend his family and his wife, stands up and slaps this guy because he made fun of his wife, a joke that he laughed at, by the way, before walking up on stage. Later, the whole public comes to find out that Will Smith has an open marriage. You hardly love your wife or your spouse if you have an open marriage, which means that you can have adulterous affairs openly. Christ has no open marriages with his bride, the church. God has no open marriages. He doesn't say, I am saving you. You are my bride. I love you. Go ahead and just be idolatrous and live just like the world does. And don't pay any attention to my commands and, and don't worry about being a part of my church because, and don't worry about sitting under the preaching of the word and don't worry about the Lord's table and don't worry about these things because it's an open marriage. You can have me and you can have the world. First John says, to be a friend of the world is to show hatred to God, to be an enemy of God. So here we see true and saving faith distinctive from that which is false. So let us join the crowds and listen to what the anointed apostle Peter has to say. Let's look at the sermon, this sermon for the ages. Sermon for the ages, that's the first point. I'm sure you've already noticed that Peter's sermon actually begins back in verse 14 after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Tongues of fire rested upon those who were filled with with the Spirit, and they began speaking in foreign tongues. And, and they were from many different regions and, and nations. And in fact, over a dozen languages were heard coming out of the mouths of those who didn't know those languages. It was miraculous. Luke then reports that the crowds were amazed and perplexed at what was happening. Some that were there even mocked those who were speaking in tongues, in foreign tongues, and said they were drunk. Then Peter, the one who had denied Jesus Christ three times just six weeks earlier, unexpectedly rose up with a kind of otherworldly boldness, and he addressed the multitude. He said in verse 15, these people are not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. What has just happened to them is the result of what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Peter then quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 32. And by doing so, he interprets the meaning of the events which had just occurred. The pouring out of the Spirit, the tongues of fire, the speaking in tongues. These people were not drunk. They were objects of God's sovereign grace. They were responding 
to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And beloved, this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not to be understood as that which is done every Sunday. There are some portions of the charismatic church that literally think that you come together and have Pentecost every Sunday and you speak in tongues and, and uh, are looking for all kinds of things to happen visibly. And, and that's just not, not the case. This is something that happened in redemptive history, a, a one-time act. Just as we don't think that Christ is going to come and die again, we know that the Spirit is not going to be poured out again in this way on the life of the church. This is a redemptive, horse, uh, his, redemptive historical event in the church. Spirit was poured out. Now, by His grace, we live in that Spirit. Christ inaugurated His kingdom and gifted His church with the Holy Spirit. And the point Peter is making here is not only that the events occurring were prophesied about in the whole Old Testament, but more importantly, now hear this, that it was the risen Lord Jesus Christ who was pouring out the Spirit upon the church. He is alive. And he's pouring out his spirit upon the church. Indeed, back in John 16, verse 7, Jesus told his disciples that he would go away. But when he did, he would send them a helper, a paraclete, namely the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, don't miss this important point. Jesus is alive, and here in this passage, he is pouring out his Holy Spirit upon the church, his church. And why was the Holy Spirit sent? For many reasons, but Jesus tells us, again in John 16, 7, that the Spirit will, quote, glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the Father and the Son sent forth the Spirit. Why? That he would put the spotlight on the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ is to be at the center of the worship of the church, of the discipleship of the church, of the teaching of the church, of the preaching of the church, of the fellowship of the church, which is here and throughout the week. The gospel, Christ himself, is to be at the very center. That is the work of the Holy Spirit to shine the spotlight on him. Amen? Not upon us, not upon our work, but upon his work. When we grasp these things, we better understand why Peter fills the main body of his sermon with a declaration of the public ministry, miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Here we learn, dear ones, that that a spirit-filled ministry is a Christ-proclaiming, gospel-heralding ministry. It's not a ministry where we talk about politics and global warming. I had a friend of mine who was studying at Oxford University, and he went to chapel, and the whole sermon, the whole eight-minute sermon, was on global warming. We don't need a gospel of politics. We don't need a gospel of good advice. We don't need a gospel of, of, of therapy. We need a gospel of good news that announces to us the person and finished redemptive work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. With this in mind, let's look at Peter's bold gospel preaching. And as we do, let us take note that the gospel he preaches is, first of all, historically grounded. Secondly, divinely purposed. Thirdly, biblically or prophetically rooted, and fourthly, powerfully confrontational. It's historically grounded, it's divinely purposed, it's biblically rooted, and it's powerfully confrontational. First of all, we see that this gospel that Peter preaches is historically grounded. Unlike many modern-day liberal theologians and historians who question or even deny the historicity of Christ's miracles, atoning death, and bodily resurrection, the Apostle Peter literally puts his life on the line to declare these things and that they really happen, that our eternal salvation depends on them. Look with me again in verse 22. Peter says there, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Dear ones, it's not insignificant here that Peter refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. For Jesus grew up in Nazareth with his parents, Joseph and Mary. He was from the town of Nazareth. But this would, of course, not have been well received by most Jews who thought that nothing important could come out of nowhere, nothing town, a nowhere, nothing town like Nazareth. So it would, from our perspective, seem that Peter is getting himself off on the wrong foot in his message to persuade these perplexed and mocking hearers. But his concern is to tell the truth about Jesus, about who he was. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He wanted to say where he was from and what he had done in their midst. Again, Peter roots the gospel in historical facts and not merely in strong emotional religious experiences or in embellishments that might impress his hearers. Isn't it interesting that this first great sermon after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not rooted in personal religious experiences? You know, Peter could have begun talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Hey, everybody, let me get your attention. Let me tell you what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was amazing. I was there. I saw it. I even said something dumb like, let's set up, set up some tents and just stay here forever. No, he doesn't go there. He doesn't go to what may have been the greatest religious experience for any of the apostles. He goes straight to the historical facts about what Christ has done and who he was. This Jesus of Nazareth, he says, was, quote, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus' three-year public ministry was not done in a corner. During his ministry, he did mighty works and wonders and signs. He gave sight to the blind. He healed the lame. He cast out evil spirits. He fed the 5,000. He raised the dead. And he demonstrated control over nature itself by calming a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee. All these were signs of the age to come, the age that has been breaking into time ever since Christ came and inaugurated his kingdom. And he's broken into time through the preaching of this gospel. And he's saving his people. And they're being raised up and given true and saving faith. And they are serving him and waiting for him to return. Peter reminds his hearers of these mighty works and signs because he knows that they would have known of them. And some would have seen them with their own eyes. But pastor, are you saying that people that actually saw Jesus do miracles are still living in rebellion against him? You mean people can hear truth and even see things that are true and not believe them and rebel against them? Answer, yes. We see it all the time. It's extraordinary. Things that we know are verifiably true and even scientific, people will say, I believe the opposite of that. We are living in an age and have always been living in an age, by the way. It's not just today, even though we're seeing it reflected in greater, uh, wider, uh, higher ways. But we are living in a day when people can see things that are verifiably factual and say something like this, no, that's not true. The opposite is true. And most people in the room are uncomfortable and feel awkward saying that, but they all go along with it. That is the world in which we live. And so people knew of what Christ had done, and still they would often mock. This Jesus... Peter says, they also crucified on a wooden cross. Three days later, he rose bodily from the dead, and according to verse 32, appeared to many witnesses. Afterwards, ascending to heaven in the clouds, being exalted to the right hand of God. So that's the first point we want to make clear here this morning, that Peter preached a historically grounded 
gospel. The Christian faith is not based on sentimental religious feelings concerning things that may not be true, but rather on historical facts. Christianity is not just a crutch for emotionally weak people who need something more than what they've got. Christianity is true, even if everybody in the world at this moment began to disbelieve it, it would still be true. Christ is risen from the dead. These truths are what Christians have been professing since Pentecost. It's what Christians have been confessing in the Apostles' Creed from the earliest days of the church. That Jesus was actually and really conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, a real historical figure. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I was texting with my dear mother yesterday. We had sent her some Easter lilies in the mail, and we were texting, and she was sharing what a special time of year this is. And she said, oh, oh, to have been there. When Christ rose from the dead and to, to be there with the, the two Marys and, and, uh, and to, have, uh, to have seen the risen Christ. And I wrote back very quickly. And I said, Mom, with the eyes of faith, we see him now. Christ said it would be better for us when he goes away and he sends the Spirit. Besides being historically grounded, We see that the gospel Peter preached here was divinely purposed. Secondly, it was divinely purposed. Look with me again at verse 23. The inspired Peter declared, quote, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What we learn here is that Christ's crucifixion and death were according to God's sovereign plan or his eternal decree and not just a consequence of the sinful, misguided crowds and the schemings of the wicked Jewish and Roman authorities. You see, God in His sovereign love for us planned and purposed, even before time, the atoning substitutionary death of His only Son, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53.10 that it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Apostle Paul expressed the same truth in Romans 8.32 when he stated that the Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. What great love God the Father has shown to sinners like us. The hymn writer put it like this, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch treasure. Dear ones, in Christ, you are the treasure of God the Father. But some may wonder if God's sovereign plan frees from guilt those who were responsible for putting Christ on the cross. The answer is absolutely not. Commentator Dennis Johnson rightly explains that, quote, God's definite plan and foreknowledge decreed and guaranteed Jesus' undeserved death without exonerating his murderers, unquote. We must understand that God's sovereign decree and mankind's responsibility for his sin are held in perfect, mysterious tension in the Scriptures. Therefore, God sovereignly purposed the death of his Son for our redemption. He foreknew every detail of what would take place, but those who carried it out were completely responsible for their wicked actions. God ordained it, but these men did it, and God did not violate their wills in any fashion when they committed these heinous sins. And on this Easter Sunday, let us remember that it wasn't only the death of Christ that was decreed by God, but also His glorious resurrection from the dead on the third day. What grace God has shown to us by purposing our redemption before time 
by accomplishing our redemption in the historical person and work of Jesus Christ and by applying our redemption by the Holy Spirit through faith. So it's historically grounded, it's divinely purposed, and thirdly, it's biblically or prophetically rooted. You know, about half of Peter's recorded sermon here is constituted of quotes from three different Old Testament texts. He was an expositor. He was expounding upon the scriptures of the Old Testament. He is demonstrating to his hearers that Christ is indeed the fulfillment of all of God's Old Covenant promises and types and prophecies. We've already seen the Old Testament citation from Joel, and now we get two more of them from the Psalms. Two more Old Testament citations that foretold of the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Look with me again in verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What does that mean, it was not possible for him to be held by it? It simply means that because Christ was innocent when he went into the grave. I tried to explain this a little bit Friday evening in our Good Friday service. You see, when Christ was made sin for us or became sin for us, it doesn't mean that he became a sinner. You hear this said sometimes by preachers. It's a terror. I know they don't mean it. I know they're just being a little sloppy. But Jesus didn't become a sinner on the cross. He was made sin. In other words, all of our sins were heaped upon the innocent one, the sinless one, the one who perfectly kept the law for us. Our sins were heaped upon him, and he paid the punishment for those sins. Christ died for our sins. He didn't become a sinner. And so it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Christ satisfied God's justice for us by dying on the cross for our sins, and he paid the wages of sin, which is what? The wages of sin is death. Christ paid the wages of our sin. He died. He went into the grave for three days, but he couldn't be kept there. Christ couldn't be kept in the grave. Why? Because he didn't do anything to deserve to be kept in the grave. He was sinless. He was innocent. And so he was raised up. And in him, guess who are raised up? We who are in him by grace through faith. When Christ died on the cross, He died to sin and he defeated sin and we died to sin in him. When Christ rose from the grave, we rose with him and in him. Christ is our mediator. You see, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. F.F. Bruce put it this way, quote, The sentence passed on Jesus by an earthly court and executed by Roman soldiers has been reversed, Peter asserts. By a higher court. Christ was not guilty. Christ was not guilty. He was innocent. And so he was raised up by God. One writer comments, and this is a great quote for today, as we have 11 members of this church having babies this year in this congregation. Listen to this quote. The grave could not hold him any more than a pregnant woman could keep a baby in her womb who is ready to be born. You will notice from verse 25 that Peter grounds his argument in the Greek version of Psalm 16, which Pastor Michael read earlier. What Peter wants us all to recognize here is that while David wrote these verses, he was not writing about himself. He was writing about Jesus. Psalm 16 is messianic in that it anticipates the resurrection of Christ. Peter explains this in verse 29. Look there with me. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Do you see the meaning of Psalm 16? 
David wasn't speaking of himself there. For he died, and he was buried, and he did see corruption in the grave, but not Christ. Not Christ, not the Holy One's body. He was sinless, and so the grave could not hold him. God raised him up and seated him on the throne of David in fulfillment of the oath, the covenant promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that I will place a king upon your throne forever and ever. And that king is King Jesus, the risen and ascended King Jesus, seated on the throne, who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. But that's not all that God the Father did to exalt his son. He gave him this sublime position of glory and power and preeminence. And this was all in fulfillment of what David wrote in Psalm 110, which is, again, quoted by Peter. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make Satan, hell, sin, and death your footstool. So in light of all this, Peter boldly exhorts his Jewish audience in verse 36 to know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a dramatic scene. I don't need to come up with all kinds of illustrations and stories to to, to, to make you entertained and to keep you awake this morning. There is nothing more dramatic and glorious than this scene here set forth. The Apostle Peter preaching the gospel, the people listening, this glorious gospel going on, a gospel of historical facts about what Christ has done for sinners. The one who could not even confess Christ before a servant girl a few weeks earlier is now proclaiming the person and work of Christ before the very ones responsible for murdering Christ. He is now willingly and joyfully risking his life for Christ and his kingdom. His preaching of the gospel is not rooted in personal experience, but in facts. He doesn't give a personal testimony. He trumpets forth the historical facts about the Jesus of Nazareth. Also, he explains that all of this was a part of God's sovereign eternal purpose. It was not by chance. Moreover, he shows by Old Testament Scripture how the gospel of Jesus Christ was was very much rooted in the Old Testament promises and prophecies, quoting Joel 2 and Psalms 16 and 110. And finally, we see how this gospel was powerfully confrontational. This isn't hard to see. Peter fearlessly confronts the crowd in their sin, not just any sin, but the unspeakable sin of killing God's Son, the promised Messiah. And if you're sitting there this morning and thinking, oh, what a terrible thing that they did putting Christ on the cross. Let us back up just a moment and recognize that if we were there on that day in our sin, we would have been joining the chorus, crucify him, crucify him, crucify this blasphemer, this false prophet, this false messiah. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So how were Peter's words received? The response is somewhat surprising if we consider how they were acting before Peter began preaching. Look with me at verse 37. Now when they heard all of this, they were what? Cut to the heart. Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Dear ones, this is true repentance. Cut to the heart. I have sinned against a holy God. It is my sins that put Jesus on the tree. I recognize the depths of my own depravity. I see my own sins cut to the heart. And then the next stage is, what shall we do? What shall we do? Due to the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts, the unbelieving scales fell from their eyes, and for the first time they understood what they had done. They were cut to the very heart by the convicting power of God's Spirit and Word. 
realizing their guilt before God. But what now? Was there any hope for such vile, guilty sinners? Perhaps you're thinking that. Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been looking at these past few years. You don't know the kind of vile sins that I have committed. I don't believe there's any hope for me. Well, here in this text, you are told there is hope for you and for every sinner. Peter just exhorted this crowd and told them that they had put the Son of God on the cross. Is there a greater sin in the world than putting the Son of God on the cross at Calvary? It was all part of God's plan, but it was a great sin that they committed. God's forgiveness and his mercy is full and rich and free, and you receive it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What is encompassed in that faith? A turning away from idols, sin, and turning to Christ who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden in your sin, and I will give you rest. Come and receive these waters, refreshing waters of grace, mercy. He says, come, whoever you are, and receive this glorious salvation. Peter answers in verse 38 and says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call to himself. This repentance is a spiritual about face. It's a, it's a spiritual 180. It's a renouncing of idols and a turning from sin and a renouncing of self-righteousness. It's putting faith in Christ alone for salvation. It's receiving baptism, which is a glorious representation of receiving forgiveness and grace in the Holy Spirit. What Peter is calling for here is a new direction, a new identity, a new allegiance by grace, all of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is not just a one-time call that took place in history. It takes place here this morning. This call to repent and believe the gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you believe these historical facts about Jesus, but you have never, by His grace, repented of your sin and bowed the knee to King Jesus. This morning is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The alternative is not good. See, Christ conquered sin, death, and hell, and Satan through his death and resurrection. But those who are outside of Christ will receive that which Christ received on the cross, which is God's wrath, and that wrath forever. Christ himself spoke of hell more than he spoke of heaven in his public ministry. Hell is a very real place, just as heaven is. And those who are in Christ will be ushered into eternal life in glory. And those who are outside of him and clinging to the things of this world, and putting their confidence and trust and faith in the things of this world, will be cast away from God forever and ever in the place that Christ calls eternal fire. But oh, the good news. Because Christ died for us, we do not receive what we deserve if we are united to him. Oh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be found in him. Be found in him. We can do nothing to save ourselves, but Christ has done everything to save us. Let us put our hope and our trust in him. Luke concludes this text by reporting that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to the church about 3,000 souls. And how did these 3,000 people and their children live after they confessed Christ? Did they go back to life as normal? 
where someone looking on to their life and the life of an unbeliever could see really no difference in their commitments and allegiances? Oh no, look with me in verse 42. We see a devoted life of worship. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, they were devoted to the ministry and life of the church of the gathering together of the people of God. And we see the apostles writing about this. It is assumed on every page of the New Testament that a true Christian will be connected to the life of a local church using their spiritual gifts, singing God's praise, sitting under the preaching of the word, receiving the sacraments, involved in one another's lives because God saves us in community. He sanctifies us in community. And so these Christians were devoted, notice, to the apostles' teaching, to Christian fellowship, to the breaking of bread, definite article in the Greek, that's speaking of the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, the, the, the prayers of the gathered church led by the apostles. There was a sincere devotion to the means of grace. It was central in the lives of these early Christians, and it should be the same for us. There are many who attend church, and I'm thankful that they do, but attend church on special days like Easter or Christmas or a baptism. But when you are in Christ and you have true and saving faith and your allegiance is to him and you're truly bowed to King Jesus, you long to be in the context of the local church where Christ is loved and worshiped, amen? You long to be there. It's not a chore It's not a burden. Oh, I got to go be with those people again this morning. I got to go listen to the gospel again. No, it's a joy because you long to hear of your Savior. From time to time, someone will tell me how wonderful my dear wife is, and they will tell me about her, and they will say nice things about her, and I love to hear it. Do you love to hear about your Savior? Those who are by grace through faith united to Christ long to see their Savior glorified and to worship Him and to make Him famous in this world as we declare Him in mission. Well, as we conclude our time in God's Word this morning, dear ones, let us rejoice in Christ's resurrection. Let us rejoice that Jesus' resurrection was historically grounded, divinely purposed, biblically prophesied, and boldly preached by the apostles. Let us rejoice in the fact that because He lives, we live in Him by faith. Even now, Paul says, we are raised with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And one day, we will be raised bodily and dwell in his presence and the presence of the angels and all the departed saints, namely all the holy ones who are in Christ forever and ever in glory. Thomas Watson put it this way, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. Dear ones, when we do, may we arise in Christ unto eternal life. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that Christ has risen. And we thank you that in Christ we are risen spiritually and one day will be risen physically forever with him. O oh Lord, be glorified as you draw all men unto yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to please turn with me to our conclusion.